morning. This is uh, Driving Theology AM edition. This will be my first time, uh, at least in uh, solo dialogues, to record in the morning on my way to work as opposed to away from. Uh, I usually record after a long day and I'm very sleepy and tired and you may even <laughs> catch a few yawns in there. Uh, man, I fight them as much as I can, but once in a while I just gotta let one go, right? Uh, so, this morning, I woke up uh, with something very specific already running through my mind and on my heart, uh, and I can't really point to any reason why this would be so, except that I believe this is uh, insight from the Lord on something, and uh, I'm not sure that you believe in such a thing that, that God speaks to us directly or puts things on our hearts or leads us in a certain direction uh, actively, even today, but, uh, and, and there was a time when I didn't believe that either, but I do now, and so I want to get right to this subject because it's something that's still probably a little bit jumbled in my mind. And, uh, there will be parts of uh, things that I've touched on, but, but I, I received uh, what I believe to be new insight that I have never read about, um, and and I believe, uh, to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, Anyway, it's going to be a bit long, perhaps. Um, I'll try to get right to the point. Uh, so this morning, as I was waking up in that kind of limbo time between uh, sleep and lucidness, and I often have uh, clarity during these times for whatever reason on, on spiritual things, uh, so as my body is kind of waking, I find that there's something that uh, God has put on my heart, and maybe it's, maybe it's because this is the time of the day that I'm most receptive to that because my mind is is not really thinking about myself and uh, my needs yet because I'm still coming from sleep. Um, and so it's a good unselfish time, possibly. I don't know why it is, but that's when songs have come to me, uh, lyrics for songs to write down, uh, uh, even, even melodies and things like that have come to me. And also, uh, like today, things that, that need to be written down and I did attempt to write it, make a first draft of this for a possible blog post in the future today, but I wanted to uh, verbalize it just to see what comes of that. Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, great place to start, right? Uh, Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit, which is from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the only tree that God warned them not to eat from. They eat from the fruit and suddenly, as, this, as, as Satan predicted, their eyes were opened. And they perceived their own nakedness to be wrong. Right? They, they were perceiving right and wrong and they, they perceived their nakedness to be wrong, and so they, they attempted to cover themselves with 
leaves. Well, God comes and he can't find Adam and Eve. He comes to the garden. He says, you know, where are you? Uh, and he finds them hiding. And he says, why are you hiding? Is you know, we're hiding because we're naked. Uh, and he says, well, who told you you were naked? You know, who said that's a bad thing? Where did that come from? And they said, well, of course they blamed it on the serpent. Uh, which, you know, the serpent is a secondary possibly a primary cause. The secondary cause is, you know, disobeying the direct uh, command of your Lord. So, they lose their innocence. Okay. Now, fast forward to today. I'm on my way to a kindergarten. I teach in, in kindergartens on uh, Wednesdays, and I teach uh, little kids, and I always read them a book. Every month I choose a book and I read it every week uh, for English practice, but I try to choose books that they would be interested in. One such book is called No, David! Uh, exclamation mark. And it's a book and actually a series of books written by a guy named David who is remembering his childhood and the drawings he used to make of himself and making somewhat humorous, uh, but I think insightful, uh, books for children. This particular book, he goes through all of the bad things that he does in a day's time, and his mother constantly telling him not to do those things. And in the end, he does something so bad that he actually does feel sorry, and he asks for forgiveness from his mom, and of course she says, yes, I love you, David. Uh, very touching book. Uh, but one of the pages is David running completely naked through the streets of their neighborhood. He just takes off out of the house naked. And obviously enjoying it. Just having a good time running naked through the streets. And his mom terrified. You know, adults see this kind of thing and they put their label on that. That's wrong. Kids have no such label. That nakedness is wrong unless they've been they've been programmed to think that by their parents. I think kids do become self-conscious after uh, a period of time where parents are constantly telling them to put clothes on, or, you know, you can't do that, or that's wrong, that's not good. And I think they, they finally get the message that mom is going to be mad if I do that, therefore I won't do it. But I don't believe that kids have the innate idea that nakedness has any connotations of wrong or wrongdoing. Nakedness is, I think, what kids discover to be their natural habitat or the natural condition that they should be in in their natural habitat. Nakedness. It's, it's uh, freeing. And so when I read this book to the kids, you know, they kind of chuckle at the different pages and no big deal. But when I get to the page of David running naked without, no matter how many times they've read this book, they burst out laughing. And at first, my inclination is, oh, they're just being mischievous. They're, they're you know, showing their evil side. They're laughing at something bad. But, you know, I, I'm having to rethink that. I, from this insight today, what, what they've done is seen 
themselves in their most most natural state, uh, a state given to them by their Creator, and they're celebrating it. Now they don't know it as such, but they sense that there's happiness in their nakedness. Now. That's not going to work today. Obviously, Christians should not go around walking naked through the world. Given. But, children. Children see a freedom in that. They see freedom to be as they were made. And they celebrate it when they see it. Uh, and if, if you don't believe me, go into any school anywhere. Especially where... Kids have not been, you know, programmed to think that nakedness is innately wrong. And I think you'll see the same reaction. And if you don't, when adults are around, you know, have kids read that book when you're, when they think you're not watching. And I think you'll see, um, you'll see a spark. I think you'll see something. I mean, these Japanese kids that I teach, they just think it's the most, you know, the, the, the greatest thing in the world. David taking off naked through the neighborhood. Uh, and I believe they are celebrating the freedom of innocence when they do that. Okay, now let's go back uh, half the distance. Let's go back to Jesus uh, while he's on the earth and he's teaching. And what does he say when the when the uh, disciples decide that Jesus is too good for kids? Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. Right? And about children, he says, unless you become as a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become as a child. What does it mean to be as a child? Children are tiny Adam and Eves. They exist in pre-fallen, in a pre-fallen world. If you could put them in a vacuum, that's where you would find them. They are innocent. They do not know right from wrong. Uh, and they are innocent. They, you know, if they do something what that we consider wrong, they don't feel guilt. Not the smallest children, anyway. Now, they, they may feel a, a sense of fear because they know that you don't like it, but they don't understand why, for example, nakedness would be wrong. Okay, they don't get it. Because they are little Adam and Eves. They are pre-fallen. They have not yet individually fallen. Okay? Uh, so, this is where we're supposed to get to if we want to see the kingdom of God. How do, how do we achieve that state of innocence? You know, well, I think if you look at the history of mankind, you'll know that we can't do it on our own. And especially the history of the Israelites. Uh, time and time again, God came near to them, uh, gave them guidelines by which to live in order to uh, prosper, 
however you want to take that word. And time and time again, they failed as a people. They failed as a people, they failed individually, they failed as a nation. Uh, so what is the, you know, what is the missing element here? Jesus says we have to be children, right? Now, back in the garden, let's go back again. As God has is punishing the disobedience of Adam and Eve, he also makes for them clothing to cover their shame. They felt shame. They felt shame from being naked. They felt embarrassed, right? To cover this shame, God makes clothes of animal skins. <laughs> now, where did those animal skins come from? Did he just make animal skins out of thin air? Did he just say, let there be animal skins? Well, no. No. What we're witnessing here is the first blood sacrifice to cover the sins of mankind, to cover the shame. To cover the sins is one way to say it, but I think to cover the shame is more accurate. It's much more accurate to say that the skins were covering that feeling of embarrassment at being naked. Okay? Uh, so, God has just, depending on how you look at it, has just finished creating the world, and on day six, he made these animals, and he said that they are good, that they were good, everything God made was good, he enjoyed everything he made so much that he rested on day seven, and that includes mankind. So on day eight, or sometime after there, where mankind uh, falls and disobeys, God has to take his creation that he's just made, whether they're cows or deer or sheep, who knows what they were, he has to kill them. He, he kills these sheep, or animals, whatever they were, shedding the blood of those animals in order to cover the shame caused by the disobedience of man. Okay. God, did God want to do this? Is this something that God took pleasure in? Did suddenly he look at Adam and Eve in these uh, skins of, of newly created favorite animals and say, oh, I love you guys so much. You guys are awesome. No, and I don't think he was angry either. You know, I think we have to be careful when we ascribe anger to God. Uh, it's a sticky subject, and if you doubt me, uh, I would ask you to read a book called A More Christ-Like God by uh, Bradley Jerzak, J-E-R-S-A-K, A More Christ-Like God, which I've talked about in this podcast before. So, all right. So God has covered the shame of mankind through the shedding of innocent blood, the innocent blood of animals, okay, and sends them out into the world to do their worst. Uh, and this is a this is a sign of God saying, "You have chosen to go your own way. I'm going to consent 
to that choice and this is what it looks like. You know, it looks like you going out into the world and having to now make food come out of the ground as opposed to me providing everything here in the garden. And Eve, you're going to have to have very severe pain in childbirth to bring forth children the pain of childbirth is going to be something that you will bear. This is what it looks like to go your own way. Now, we don't know what childbirth would have looked like or how procreation might have happened uh, had mankind not sinned. But anyway, this is what happens. So man, man goes into the world. And now he's, he's not walking alongside with God every day in the garden. Now, certain men who God considered to be righteous, uh, Abraham, for example, Noah, for example, uh, did uh, have conversations with God from time to time. He did talk to them directly, but mostly God was now separated from the intimate fellowship with uh, mankind. Did I say that right? God was separated with the intimate fellowship of mankind, or rather, man separated himself of the intimate fellowship with God. And so, here we have man now trying to make his own way in the world, God watching somewhat from a distance. Uh, and this is where the plan of redemption begins to take shape. Now, there's a time... Uh, before the flood, we see several instances where God allows mankind to multiply and flourish. Uh, and then what we see in the flood, which is the next big event, we see God whittling down to the righteous again. <clears throat> he chooses for himself a remnant from all the people on the earth. Uh, which is Noah, Noah's wife, Noah's three sons, and their wives. Eight people. So now they are the remnant. They are the righteous who are going to continue God's purposes in the world. And so he con continues through them. Uh, and everyone else is lost in the flood. Okay, the next instance is where uh, the Tower of Babel happens. It's a, it's a language changing thing, where everybody spoke the same language up to that point, they become arrogant, they think that in their uh, awesome cooperation that they can somehow reach God, and God confuses their language, further separating out for himself a people. Now I suppose in that instance, the Hebrew language was invented. You might say that Hebrew was the original language, and that I mean, but there's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing that Hebrew language was the language before the flood or before Babel. Uh, but anyway, after Babel, languages are created, different families of languages, and people are separated uh, throughout the world in order to keep them from presumably arrogance and thinking too highly of themselves, pride. So. In this world, we see many nations formed and many many peoples formed. One is uh, born out of 
Abraham, a man who was considered to be righteous because of his great faith in God. He had great faith, he acted in his faith, and God considered him to be righteous. It was credited him to be righteous, or, or righteousness was reckoned unto him, however you uh, want to see it. But God considered him to be good. And God decided to, again, through Abraham, bring forth a chosen people unto himself uh, who would represent his purposes in the world. But all throughout this time, I'm going to kind of get off that subject a bit, mankind is trying to please God and constantly failing, constantly finding their efforts to be futile. Uh, in this situation, God again calls the people for himself out of uh, the same people, Abraham's people, out of Egypt. And when they've been called out of Egypt, they are several, possibly a couple million strong by this time. Uh, they are given the system of the tabernacle from God. They are given this system. And what this system does is codifies God's ex expectations for the behavior of his people. Now, behavior is the is the uh, the word I want to talk about. Uh, emphasize at this point behavior. You know what they do and what they don't do. God wants to let them know what is acceptable to God and what is not. So He creates the law, and in in this law of six hundred and fourteen uh, rules, regulations, uh, and laws is the system of the tabernacle, and you would say it's central. The tabernacle was a tent that was designed completely by God from the size to the materials, and it is it becomes the dwelling place of God amongst his people. So the people of Israel are, again, perhaps a couple million strong. They're in the desert. They are a nomadic people at this point, trying to get to their homeland, and God steps into that situation and he creates the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle has an, uh, an inner tent which has two chambers. Uh, the first chamber is the, is the common chamber where priests enter in uh, and things like this. Uh, and then the second chamber is uh, the Holy of Holies, of course, where only the high priest enters once a year uh, to perform the uh, atoning sacrifice for the people, for the sins of all the people. Uh, now, the reason I'm talking about the tabernacle is not to go into the details at all, but there is one specific detail that this morning came to mind. The roof of the tabernacle, this is a tent, now there's a, there's a roof. I don't know if any of you remember what the roof of the tabernacle is made of. Give me a second to think about that. Uh, if you don't, don't worry about it. Now, I haven't looked this up and I haven't read this in a couple months. Uh, this is from my memory, but the roof of the tabernacle is made of, I believe, animal skins. It's made of animal skins. God chooses to cover his house, his dwelling place amongst his people 
with the skins of animals. Let that sink in just a bit. God has chosen to cover his dwelling place, his dwelling place, mind you, with the skins of animals. Yeah, this could be pragmatic. It could mean nothing more than the fact that animal skins are tough and waterproof, somewhat. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. Uh, why does God need to be waterproof, first of all? <laughs> God's everything proof. Um, <clears throat> so, this is an interesting thing. I, and this is the part of the, the idea that I'm, I'm not quite sure about all the connotations. This is just a thought I had just a couple hours ago. Haven't really worked it through. But it does seem interesting to me that at the tabernacle, when God chooses to dwell amongst his people for the first time since the garden, he chooses to cover himself with the same skins, the same tools. Uh, that mankind was given by him to cover their shame. Now, is God covering his shame? No. God is not covering his shame. Our Lord is without fault. He is without fault. But doesn't it speak to the kind of Lord we serve? who comes to us and shares in our shame and suffering. He suffers alongside of us. Uh, and we see that here in the tabernacle. Uh, and I think we also, I think we also see it quite possibly, well, not quite possibly, of course we see it. Sorry, I'm driving and my mind wandered for a second. Uh, we see it at the cross. The fact that he comes all the way to us. Even though we are incapable of going, covering any of the distance to him, he covers the entire distance to us, suffers with us and for us and alongside us. Okay. Now, some people think that Jesus died so we don't have to. And I suppose in a spiritual sense you could say that's true. But Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Okay, So we have to die to our sin. We have to be crucified. We have to die as well. Jesus doesn't come to die so we don't have to die. Jesus comes to die with us. To say, you are not alone in this. I am sharing in your pain and in your suffering and in the punishment. I share in the punishment. I feel the same shame that you feel. Not because I'm guilty, but because I love you. Uh, 
So just to wrap this up, I'm about five minutes from having to teach my class with these wonderfully innocent uh, kindergartners. And I'm thinking now, you know, how is this, what I, the thoughts that I've just had, how is this going to change the way that I see their behavior? You know, these are kids who are four, five, and six years old. Four, five, and six years old. Uh, man, I want to celebrate with them. I want to celebrate their innocence with them. Because Jesus has come to cover up our shame with his innocent blood once and for all. And Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam before the fall. Jesus never had a fall. He is the second Adam. The last man and yet the second Adam who is without sin, without blemish. He is that innocent child who doesn't know about his nakedness. He feels no shame in his nakedness. God has seen fit to cover us up with this innocent child. So that when God looks at you, and when God looks at me, he sees an innocent child who has never disobeyed, who has eaten from the tree of life instead of from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What a beautiful Lord we serve. Think about that. He has restored your innocence. You have become as an innocent child to him. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus, who has been chosen to be this child for us. And Jesus sees you he sees that innocent child. And I want you and I want me to celebrate that innocence that we have been blessed with. Celebrate that innocence. We could not achieve the innocence we lost. And we can never achieve that innocence, no matter what we do. We cannot reclaim that innocence. But your father, God, had it covered. <laughs> he had it covered. <laughs> no pun intended, but I like it. He had it covered. And now you are covered with the image of that innocent child. And that innocent child is the image of God. You are made in the image of God. You are innocent. You are free. 
You are free of the knowledge of good and evil. That is your position in Jesus Christ. Is that not something to celebrate? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Um, if you're like me, you have a problem accepting that innocence. You find yourself from time to time running back to that tree, that forbidden fruit. And you don't see yourself the way that God sees you. You see yourself the way that Satan sees you. Satan, he's the accuser. He wants us to feel. He wants us to see ourselves. As sinful. As unpleasing to God. But Jesus, once for all, once for all, on the cross, by his death, took away the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He defeated sin and death. He has taken that tree away from us. And if it still exists, it exists in our minds because we do not see the truth that we have been transformed back into the image of the innocent child. And so Jesus says, yes, let these children come to me because unless you learn from these children, cannot enter my kingdom. So I suppose today I'm going to try to learn from these children. I'm going to learn about what my position looks like to the Lord. And if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you deal, deal with children in any way, Pray that today you will you will think about that that you will strive to see children uh, the way that our Father God sees children. Children are made in the image of God. God bless you guys.